Hey there, it's Jason. Welcome to the Jason Wright Show, where the mission is very simple. It is to improve always in all ways. Look, I am on a mission to create the absolute best version of myself. And through the Jason Wright Show, I let you know everything I'm doing to make that happen. I interview incredible, remarkable, brilliant individuals from all different walks of life. And I also try to bring you tools, tactics, and protocols that will help you in your own personal mission to improve always in always. Now, let's get started. Well, hey, folks, welcome to this episode of The Jason Rice Show. I am very excited to bring to you my conversation with author James Fenelone. James is an incredible author who has written what I consider to be a masterful work with regard to this almost unsung, unknown group of band of brothers that are, in a word, heroic, and that is the 11th airborne division of only 8,500 guys that fought in the Pacific um, theater of war during World War II. And this book is so good, Angels Against the Sun. And it was such an honor to get to talk to James. So first of all, who is James? James is a paratrooper turned historian. He served in the U.S. Army for more than a decade and is a graduate of the U.S. Army's Airborne Jump Master and Pathfinder Schools. His previous book, Four Hours of Fury, the untold story of World War II's largest airborne invasion and the final push into Nazi Germany, was widely praised. The Wall Street Journal called it inspired, and the Army Times called it a riveting account. He has written for World War II magazine, military history, and other outlets, and served as a technical advisor for World War II documentaries. An alumnus of the University of Texas at Austin, Fenelone and his wife live in the Texas Hill Country. Folks, I hope you enjoy this conversation. If you've enjoyed even a fraction as much as I enjoyed the book, as well as getting to meet the author, James, then I think you're going to be in for a real treat in this conversation. So with that, here we go. Enjoy this conversation on The Jason Wright Show with James M. Fenelone, author of Angels Against the Sun. All right, James, welcome to the Jason Wright Show. I am excited to have this conversation about your new book, Angels Against the Sun. This is one of the, and like, I admittedly, I haven't had a chance to finish it. Like I told you offline, what I have read, which is a better part, I've got more read than not. What an incredible read about a different era, a different generation, a different time of struggle, toughness. I really enjoyed this book. So, man, welcome to the Jason Wright Show. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you, Jason. It's a privilege to be here. I appreciate the invitation. All right. So here's the way I want to set this up. I mean, there's so many thoughts running through my head, and I've got and I did like I normally don't do. I usually don't come with a list of questions. But this book brought out so many things. I wanted to make sure that I didn't miss um, anything. But I want you to tee it off and just tell me kind of, you know, I tell this audience who you are. You're a paratrooper yourself, and therefore you're writing this very, I think, important book to kind of give this particular regimen 
a the recognition they deserved. What really was the driving force behind all the things that you could write about and that you've written about that you're like, I got to tell this story. Kind of how did this thing evolve, man? Sure. Yeah. So I enlisted in the army right out of high school and went to jump school back in 1988, which was a while ago, I will admit. Um, but you know, that was kind of my, my, my entree, if you will, into paratroopers and, and the army history behind those units. Of course, I had learned a little bit about it while I was in high school and was always fascinated with, with history, but it was really, you know, kind of going through the three weeks at Fort Benning, which is not dissimilar from what it was back in world war two. You know, the main difference between then and now was those guys, learned how to pack their own parachutes. And now they, now they have dedicated professionals to take care of that, which is uh, a major relief of the stress. Cause who wants to, you know, (laughs) I I don't know. I guess you could look at it both ways. Some guys probably want to pack their own parachutes. That wasn't really a skill that I was interested in in picking up. I don't know. But um, so I was going through that school there. They had a small uh, museum on base and that was kind of where it expanded my horizons, if you will, about some of the other airborne operations that had gone on in World War II besides just Normandy and the, and the big jump into Holland that I was familiar with. I'm sure you and many of your listeners are familiar with Band of Brothers, which is has a very storied military history. But it was really kind of those other units that started attracting my attention. And that, you know, once I got out of the service and started kind of diving into history deeper, I started looking for those other stories. And sometimes you could find them and sometimes you couldn't. And one day my wife said, hey, instead of complaining about the book you can't find, why don't you just write it? And that led me to write my first book, which was about the 17th Airborne Division in Europe, specifically the jump across the Rhine River. And I knew while I was working on that and really enjoyed the process that I wanted to jump in and also tell the story of the 11th Airborne Division, which meant transitioning into the Pacific Theater. And that's what that kind of brings up the next question. And it's one that, to be honest with you, James, I had not thought about until I got a hold of your book as to why the Pacific has doesn't get the attention that Europe does especially when you take into account pearl harbor and kind of what happened and then the way things ultimately ended uh with regard to world war ii why do you think that the that i guess i mean like when you talk about like to hell and back and all these other great films you know for and and just most of the reporting that most people know they kind of envision marching through areas of, of germany and other aspects of europe why do you think the Pacific didn't get the attention that Europe did with regard to World War II? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And there's probably a lot of different answers or directions you could go with that. But I think, you know, if we step back and look at it just from a popular culture perspective, I think the war in Europe kind of captured the popular imagination, if you will, around, you know, pretty French countryside, weekend passes in Paris. Of course, you had, you know, the the British you know, the Blitz and all the reporting that came from London during that time before America was in the war. So you already had kind of captured some of that that popular attention in that direction, so to speak. And when you look at the Pacific War, of course, it was an island hopping campaign. So you don't necessarily have these massive sweeping armies breaking out of the bocage and, you know, crushing their way towards an objective. It was very much a, you know, island by island, secure the island enough to where you could build an airfield, have a logistics base on it so that you can then jump to the next island. And then, of course, there was the conditions, right? There's very little romantic about living in the mud 
all the time dealing with insects, humidity, there's nowhere to go. So even when you're not on the front line, you're still on the same Island. You're just on the other side of it. (laughs) So you're still dealing with all of the, you know, humidity and all the environmental factors. And then of course the fighting itself was extremely different, right? There was no, you know, the war in the Pacific was essentially a war of attrition where it was, you know, a punch in the face kind of bar fight that nobody was willing to retreat from. And so you kind of had that, which was, again, very different than what the American forces in in Europe dealt with. You know, and that probably is one of the things that made MacArthur the perfect uh, commander for that area, because it just it required such a, I guess, just a unique mindset. And that's so I'm reminded of I don't know. Have you ever read this book? It's called uh, Natural Born Heroes. Have you ever read that by chance? No, I haven't. All right, man, you you would love it. I just read it not too long ago. It was referred to me by a physician who's a very good friend of mine. Not so much because of the it was it was a part of uh, World War Two where the uh, where kind of like these these British mercenaries went to the island of Crete, and it talks about how they were just kind of these um, unusually prepared, almost by accident heroes and what they did was just astonishing to go to this unique kind of environment terrain and topography all it was just so odd from all other areas of the war it's a really good book and as i was reading your book i was thinking of that because i don't think i mean you nailed it i think a lot of people don't realize just how the the battle that these these guys took on whenever they were in the for lack of a better word the bush with the humidity and just it's just disgusting just the sweat and just how all of a sudden man their bodies are going through something that you just really can't you know simulate in north carolina or different places where they had trained right and not only that they're just they're literally they're paratroopers they're dropped into this completely alien world and on a completely not in a million years comparing anything i've ever done i but i have experienced some of the kind of terrain that it sounds like they went through. I I did a mission trip to the southern Hunan province of China, and within 15, well, excuse me, within three days, I had lost 15 pounds, was completely dehydrated, was carrying a 50-pound pack, and it was all I could do to see straight. These guys are going to war and going to battle, and that just blew my mind. But before we get there to these guys that took on these incredibly um, insurmountable odds and this weird terrain and this kind of unromantic part of the war, just kind of sum up for the audience, James, who were these guys? What, you know, you mentioned Band of Brothers. I think that's one of the things that gets lost whenever we talk about soldiers now. We think of Jocko Willing and all, and David Goggins and all these kind of almost like superhuman guys. They, They had a mission, they wanted to enlist, they wanted to be in the service. But I mean, World War II, we're talking about maybe an English teacher, maybe a farmer. Who were the guys that made, and start describing this battalion and what they were doing and kind of the makeup of these human beings that were going to fight this battle? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great place to start. And it's one of the things I really wanted to spend a lot of time on in the book. And by a lot of time, I mean, you know, a couple, you know, two chapters introducing some of these guys who, to your point, came from all walks of life. You know, one guy had, had been in high school ROTC. And I remember he had hitchhiked during the summers all the way up to Seattle, Washington from, uh, from Los Angeles, where he would work on ships during the summer. Literally his parents let this 15 year old kid, uh, 
I was going to say hijack. That's not the word I'm looking for. Uh, hitchhike, sorry. Hitchhike all the way up the entire Western seacoast to, to find work in the summer, right? And so just coming at it from that perspective, you have that guy, you had another guy who was worked for the telephone company, stringing up telephone lines. And when World War II happened, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. A lot of these guys enlisted. A lot of them were also drafted. The average age of the 11th Airborne Division in 1943 was 19 years old. So you're, you know, you're talking late teens, early 20s. Um, you know, and one of the things that surprised me when I interviewed these guys or read some of their letters was that they um, were not bothered by going to the Pacific, that that was actually the reason they had enlisted in the first place was in response to the attack on Pearl Harbor. And so they wanted to go fight the Japanese. And then when you look at you know, why they were were drawn to, you know, parachute units, which were only volunteers, meaning so you wouldn't be assigned to a parachute unit. You you would have to volunteer for that additional duty, if you will, of jumping out of an airplane. They didn't force anybody to do that, but you did have to make it through what at the time was some of the Army's toughest training. We mentioned earlier, it was about four weeks of training at Fort Benning just for that one part of the school where they taught you how to fall out of an airplane. Um, and, you know, and so those guys were attracted to that for a number of reasons. Some of them were attracted due to the toughness or the reputation of the paratroopers. They wanted to fight with the best. And so they thought the best way to, you know, survive the war was to volunteer for that, that higher echelon of, 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 of soldier, if you will. Um, some of them were attracted for the money. So you got hazardous duty pay. So you got $50 extra a month. And in some cases that doubled the amount that somebody was earning uh, per month. So that was one of the reasons why guys were attracted to it. Um, you know, I remember Rod Serling was one of the guys that was in the division and I read some of his letters home and he, he was, uh, he volunteered because he thought that going through that rigorous training would not only make him a better soldier, but would make him a better man is the way he kind of looked at it. And so it's, it's fantastic to kind of see how these guys looked at it. And again, you know, you also had on the other side of that spectrum, like I said, guys were motivated by the cash. Wow. All right. So I mentioned MacArthur earlier. Uh, Douglas MacArthur was not too keen on this this band of brothers, as it were. Why? Yeah. So one of the things uh, that we want to understand as we as we think about the 11th and their and their movement into the Pacific Theater, of course, like like the 101st Airborne, the Band of Brothers, and it's a good it's a good point of comparison, but. You know, they were originally intended as shock troopers, right? Very much like we see them used in Normandy. The idea of they're going to jump in ahead of the landings. They're going to secure the flanks or some bridges or things like that. And so one of the one of the things that characterized those divisions was they were smaller than traditional infantry divisions. So a traditional infantry division was anywhere from 14 to 15,000 guys. An airborne division in World War II was about 8,500 men. And so, you know, MacArthur's looking at his specific campaign, as we mentioned, it's that island hopping concept. And what that meant was, you know, you really had to have your logistics buttoned up significantly because sometimes your supply chain started back in San Francisco and had to, you know, you know, steam all of its way to, to the Pacific. And what that meant was once they got the supplies on the beach, it was really up to those army units to then figure out how to get the supplies off the beach and up into the front line. 
lines. Now, a normal infantry division had a larger complement of manpower to help do that. MacArthur's concern about the 11th Airborne was with only 8,500 guys, they, they would either have to sacrifice their fighting power up on the front line to get those supplies forward, or they just simply wouldn't be able to sustain their campaign by getting those supplies up in the mountains. And it's really where you start to see the, the creativity, if you will, or almost the improvisation of the division commander, Joseph Swing, to overcome those obstacles and really kind of lean in with an aggressive spirit. You know, you mentioned uh, Swing. One of the things I loved reading about him is he sounds kind of like a John McCain type. I mean, the guy that's just, he's a born soldier. He's born for the military service, but he's also just... The dude loves to have fun. He's not quite as serious, but it's almost like those are the ones that make the best soldiers. You know, they're just they're I, I, I really enjoyed um, reading and kind of understanding who he was. Is there anything else you want to talk about about Swing? Because I thought I thought he was a pretty cool character. Yeah, he he was a really interesting guy. To your point, he graduated from West Point in 1915, and I think one of the real found foundational elements of his career was his first assignment out of out of West Point, which was as a lieutenant, he was assigned to, you know, Blackjack Pershing's expedition wow. into Mexico, which, you know, was right before World War One. But it was also more importantly, right when the U.S. Army started experimenting with modernization. Right. So these guys are hunting Pancho Villa across the Mexico border. It's the first time the army is using vehicles. So they've got very rudimentary cargo trucks. They've got, you know, some light skinned armored vehicles that they're using. They've got motorcycles. They've even got some biplanes that they're using to do scouting missions. And so swing kind of witnessed this as the campaign was unfolding and where I really feel that it, it impacted him and what you see uh, a level of comfort with in World War II was a lack of doctrine, right? So you've got all this new equipment in 1916 in Mexico. Nobody knows how to use it. Nobody knows how to integrate it into the plan. Uh, you see trucks breaking down due to lack of spare parts. They run out of gas. And so you just see this idea around, well, you know, we're, we're not sure how to quite use this technology yet. We also see a bunch of cautionary tales as to what happens if you don't plan for it accordingly. And Swing just kind of, you know, gets real comfortable with that idea. So when he gets up into the mountains of Leyte and he's got to kind of make up how he's going to get these logistics up into his, up into the mountains and where his men are, you know, he presses into service, these like light observation aircraft, these, you know, what one guy described as uh lawnmower with wings. And they were originally intended to be used as artillery observation aircraft, but swing presses them into service as basically his own air force. And they start flying up into the mountains to drop these supplies um, and you really see just swings, you know, willingness to ignore doctrine when it comes to how he's going to keep taking the war to the enemy. And that's so cool that you mentioned that because it's like reading that he was in Eisenhower's class at uh, West Point. Right. And so mm -hmm. you've got one guy that's got obviously the ultimate. I, I want, you know, for lack of a better term, ultimate rule follower and diplomat in, in the armed services, which is Eisenhower. I mean, because if you're going to become a commanding general like he did and ultimately the president, you're good at the political game as well as Eisenhower was brilliant. He was a great soldier and all that and a good leader. But then you've also got to have the guy like kind of like a MacArthur type or, you know, or, or like a Patton or like a swing that comes in and is like, look, 
I operate on grit, common sense, and just kind of an attitude of badassness that you that, that just we're, we're going to get this job done. Yeah, it may not be pretty, and I'm not may not say the right things to get promoted, but you want me out there, and it's so cool to see the contrast of him. That's why I wanted to get a little more texture on him. I, that I thought that was really cool. Uh, all right, so one of the things that I did not know, James, before I read your book, I had no idea what bonsai meant, and I was and as I was reading through, kind of this campaign that the 11th Airborne was undertaking, it was kind of, and I may be completely off base, this is just how my mind works. I'm thinking, okay, we won the American Revolution essentially with the, the a great deal of help from guerrilla warfare, essentially, right? And now here we are kind of coming into as the big armed force in a foreign land where there's going to be a lot of jungle warfare of which was this bonsai type uh, attack that the, our guys would have to endure. And then we overcame that to victory. So kind of tell us a little bit about the fighting style of the Japanese and what bonsai, what that actually is. Yeah. So it's, it's a great question, Jason. Um, you know, so the Japanese bonsai or human wave attacks that we kind of, you know, have seen in the Sansa Iwo Jima and some of those other movies, right. That, uh, from, from back in the day was, was a tactic that the Japanese developed, you know, on their mainland China campaign in the, in the late twenties, early thirties that worked really well against poorly trained infantry that were not well armed. Right. So you can imagine if you're not, really well trained you're not super motivated you don't have great weapons and these guys are running at you with swords over their heads and very long intimidating looking bayonets in most cases on on the main you know the chinese mainland where japanese where japan started their campaign the enemy would just break and run um that did not really work against allied troops such as the australians british or the americans who um, were very well trained and had a significant amount of firepower And so that's really kind of how they defended against these tactics. And, you know, it's interesting that the Japanese never really changed their tactics throughout the war. Now, there's some exceptions towards the end of the war there when they kind of started, or I should say they stopped doing some of those things. But for the vast majority of World War II, that was kind of their way that they would try to take an objective, get shoulder to shoulder. They would, you know, develop this call and response kind of system where the officers would yell the men would respond with this cry of bonsai trying to psych themselves up into um, a frenzy getting ready to launch this attack and then when the officer felt like everybody under his command was was worked up enough they would break forward and start running shoulder to shoulder um, towards the american lines and you know what was interesting about the 11th up there in those mountains you know, a lot of the American technology was really negated up in those mountains because they couldn't really call in close air support because the 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 elevations at what where they were fighting were often covered in cloud cover. So aircraft couldn't really see not only the terrain, but where these guys were. So that negates the ability to call in, you know, aircraft to help you. They couldn't call in artillery from the coast for the same reason. They had very poor maps. So the maps these guys had up in the mountains were all hand drawn, which is wildly inaccurate. And so, you know, just knowing where you are, you know, you want to know where you are when you're going to call in artillery or air support for obvious reasons. And so really the, you know, the 11th up in the mountains of Leyte were going against the Japanese head to head. And so you've got these human wave attacks going in against, you know, 
guys sitting in their muddy foxholes. And that's really, you know, where the subtitle of the book, the concept of, of brotherhood can, came into play because it, and it's a much overused cliche in a lot of ways these days, especially in corporate America, you know, relying on the guy to your right, relying on your guy to your left. But that's kind of really where that, that kind of concept came into play because that was how you defended against those attacks. Everybody kind of had to do their job. Everybody had to hold their lo- their position because if somebody broke and ran, then that was enough of a seam for the, you know, for the Japanese to, to get through and then start folding, folding the line. It's interesting you say that. So I want to pull up here. So give me just a second. This was one of the passages from the book that really struck, that really struck me as to the differences between uh, these guys and what they did and just kind of their attitude towards one another and how they fought together. Let me see if I can find this. Oh, man, I had it pulled up here because I really wanted – well, it, I'll tell you what it was, and you'll probably know the story, so you can describe it since I, I thought I had it pulled up here on my computer because I was just literally reading through this. It's where one um, one of the one of the soldiers – his uh, was his, basically his buddy had been shot, and this guy he's really fast. He's he's uh, he's fast, and he just goes charging down the hill because he knows his buddy has been has been shot. Well, he ends up ends up taking fire in the chest. Both of them die. By the time he gets to his buddy, he, I think you described he's or it was described in the book he's butchered. But there was just this sense that you just th- these are friends. You do not lose allowing your one of your friends to, or to die without you're at least trying to save them gather them uh it was to me that one passage and i'm, I'm really ticked i could have sworn i had it right here ready because i wanted to read that passage it was so moving to me talk a little bit about some of the other stories that you heard of where even if you know your buddy is is basically a goner and you and you have the chance to break away free these guys wouldn't do it they would go into harm's way to at least try to even if it was just salvaging one of their fallen brothers to get them out of harm's way am i reading that right yeah no absolutely and and, and i remember that story i always i always get choked up whenever i think about the yep. literal implications of that story because it's pretty moving but you're right you know it's one of those things where you know and we'll talk a little bit about maybe this is a good time to talk about Oren haugen the commander of the 511th um his his, you know the men nicknamed him hard rock yep he was a very uh grueling taskmaster but one of the things that he really wanted to instill upon his men was this sense of responsibility and and trust. And one of the things you see him doing when they are, you know, running up Mount Curry, they trained at the same base as, as uh, the the band of brothers did. But you know, he he led from the front. He would lead those runs himself. He would make sure his officers ran the same mountain the same time all of his men were doing it. There's examples of, you know, one guy being cold. And so an officer giving him his gloves. And this is when they were training in Georgia before they left for the States. But it was this idea. Haugen had this idea that, you know, guys, now's the time to build trust as leaders within this unit, right? The time, the time when we get into combat is going to be too late to earn that trust. So you have to earn that trust now while we have the luxury of training to let these men know that they can count on you as a leader, so that when we get into combat, you've got that you've got that uh, bank account filled, so to speak. And so when you need to call on that trust, it's there. And it's the same kind of thing. And that was distilled down into the enlisted men. And it really came down to this idea that, you know, they were more scared in most cases of letting their buddies down than they were of dying. 
Yeah. Right. And and that was just something that was drilled into them, never to be seen as the weak link. You know, now you can make some arguments on the pros and cons of that approach, you know, from a from a post-traumatic stress perspective later on. But that was really how those guys viewed it. Right. They did not want to be viewed as the, the, the guy that let somebody down. And so that carried them through many situations. Right. And that could that could just be as simple as cracking a, a well-timed joke in a in a in a horrible situation to lighten the mood from a humor perspective. And to the story that you illustrated, it could also mean running out into the middle of gunfire to try to rescue somebody who's been mortally wounded. Yeah, I told you before we even started recording how Haugen kind of struck me immediately as a pretty cool character, colorful character. I mean, the guy that would run with his men and it would push them so hard and they were not going to be outdone physically. They were going to be, you know, they were going to be prepared. And that's kind of what reminded me of that book, Natural Born Heroes, is he would push these men beyond what they probably thought they could endure. But man, that breaking them down physically. And then him, even though he was a chain smoker, being able to just go toe to toe right there with them, just it's kind of that, um, you know, that level of just grit and um, iron sidedness that we just don't see very often anymore. And so he was a character that really struck out to me. All right. So let's talk a little bit about where was the role? I got to imagine at this time, it's a lot different than, than in today. And I want to kind of talk a little bit about the con- contrast of just where we are today versus then. But what about the role of faith in this group of, of guys? How, what, what did that, what kind of impact did that have on these men? Yeah. So I think if you look, you know, if you look back several decades, I think obviously faith was stronger across the nation as it is now, just as a, you know, a general broad comment. And so I think there were a lot more soldiers in World War II that relied on faith. Uh, the army actually went to some length to actually try to study and understand how men in combat controlled fear. And one of the things that they discovered through an army-wide survey was the importance of faith, right? And you can imagine believing in a higher power, believing in uh, eternal life after death. That's a, that could be a powerful um, an- antidote's not the right word, but that's the word that comes to mind when when you're combating fear, right? So the idea of prayer is something that a lot of guys uh, relied on. And in many cases, you would see officers before they went into battle um, leading their men in prayer. You know, there's so many famous cases, particularly, uh, you know, before Normandy, when the guys are getting ready to go jump into Normandy with the officer corps leading them in in kind of a group prayer. Um, and there was one incident, you know, that stuck out in a lot of the memories of the of the 11th Airborne, which was when they were up in the mountains, they had been going for about five days without food. Um, none of those light aircraft that I'd mentioned earlier were able to make it up into the mountains because of the the cloud cover. So they hadn't been resupplied in a number of days. And the division chaplain, um, a guy named Walker, whose nickname obviously was Chappie, Chappie Walker, um, led the group in 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 an impromptu prayer session, um, a church service, and at the end of which, uh, a small hole in the clouds opened up, which allowed one of these planes to swoop down and drop a couple of crates of rations to the to these guys. And so, you know, a lot of them viewed that as kind of a divine intervention, and it was something that they would always talk about at all their reunions and and in some of their newsletters, they would recount that it was a very common retelling. Wow, that's so cool. And again, you mentioned something that I wanted to, I'm glad you brought it up, going back to that 
So that book I was mentioning earlier, uh, Natural Born Heroes, they talk about how long these soldiers would go without food or just with just bread. It's the 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 bare 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 minimum of of any sorts of nourishment, and yet it what an amazing mechanism our bodies are and that's what it was really cool because this this book is not necessarily about the wonders of how our body is ancestrally designed and but it kind of comes through that in addition to these men having just bravery grit and the ability to to fight it just shows just the incredible miracle that the human body really is able to endure so so very much and that was one of the things that I, I couldn't help but take away from it, just thinking, my God, what these what these guys were going through, just physically, even when when they weren't fighting, lack of sleep, they're soaking wet, they're in the mud, they're in the, it's hot as hell, so you know they're dehydrated, they're hungry. I just, it, it's really cool. Um, there's one of the things that I did want to ask you about. So I was in probably, I don't know, man, ninth or tenth grade in high school, and. We start they they started this thing called Channel One, which was kind of like a little daily news brief. And I was I specifically I couldn't tell you any episode that I ever watched, but there was one that stuck out for me, and it was um, on the anniversary of Hiroshima, I guess, or uh, Hiroshima, if I'm pronouncing it wrong. And they they had some American students go over there, and of course, in this particular case, it was they were just you know expressing their shame, their guilt, and, you know, kind of a, a real, you know, public school funded struggle session. And so, but I, I know you interviewed some of the soldiers. Now, we always read about, or at least I have, about Truman, you know, the, having to make this unbelievably difficult decision. Some say that's what kind of proved that Truman was an incredible leader willing to make decisive decisions because he made one of these, the hardest decisions that any commander-in-chief has ever had to make. Others despise him for making the decision he did. Easy for all of us that just get to see, be armchair quarterbacks. You, right. you actually interviewed and talked to and researched some of the soldiers who fought this campaign, and, and even though it ended this war, brought them back to their loved ones, to their families, some probably had conflicting feelings about it, what did you find whenever you would talk to some of those soldiers and how the war ended like that? Yeah, I, I want to, and I want to answer that in two parts because I think it's interesting, right? So the first part of the answer is looking at how did these soldiers view, you know, the atomic bombs in 1945 in when it was actually happening. And what was interesting is, of course, these guys didn't know what an atomic bomb was. Right. And so, you know, what you see is like when you look at the diaries of the letters home, you know, they don't really have any idea how to process what they're reading about in Stars and Stripes and hearing about on the radio, right? And so their initial reaction is, is that it's not going to do anything, right? Because they've been battling the Japanese for years. The Japanese for years have been proclaiming that they're never going to surrender. And so nobody, you know, nobody in the, in the 11th Airborne, at least, actually thought that anything was going to come from this. You know, then, of course, they dropped the second one. Then they started hearing rumors that the Japanese were willing to talk about an end to the war. And I, and, I, and I phrase it that way because the Japanese at this point were still not, even internally, there was a, still a lot of debate amongst the Japanese as to whether or not they were actually going to offer surrender terms or just peace terms, right? And the idea was, well, 
you know, because the Japanese strategy all up to this point was, well, we just need one more. We just need one def- decisive victory against America in order to then we can come to the table on equal terms was their thinking. Right. And now the, the, the place and time of this decisive victory kept getting rolled back as they kept losing. Right. So Iwo Jima is a great example of that was supposed to be a decisive victory. Right. And that's why, and that of course resulted in very brutal warfare. Right. So not taking anything away from, you know, there was a lot of work to, to make those victories happen. But the, and so then finally the Japanese had rolled all the way back to the home islands. Well, the, 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 the decisive, victory is going to take place on the shores of the home island and and as part of that they had they had activated millions of civilian militia and they had armed them with everything from you know rudimentary rifles and pistols to spears and knives and handmade hand grenades right so um you know and again and they had been very vocal about this and how bloody the invasion was going to be and so what you see is, you know, the 11th was also the first, you know, were the first troops on the ground to land in Japan. They actually flew in from Okinawa into an airfield right outside of Tokyo before the official surrender had occurred. When these guys landed to secure that airfield, they went in fully armed, fully expecting the Japanese to resist because they just couldn't believe that the Japanese would actually give up. And you know, one of one of the guys commented the Japanese surrendered as hard as they fought because once once they landed on the ground, there was no fortunately there were no incidents. There was no, you know, resistance or reprisal movement type of thing. Um, but, you know, right when that was happening, they were also planning, you know, and training for the invasion of Japan. And so over the years, as they looked back at it, you know, almost universally, and I don't, you know, I don't, I'm painting with a broad brush here, but almost all of the veterans viewed the dropping of the atomic bombs as the best possible outcome, not only for themselves, because it certainly, they certainly all viewed it as saving their lives, right? That they had were convinced at this point that an invasion of Japan would have certainly resulted in their deaths because they would have been in the first or second wave of that. But the dropping also saved millions of civilians lives because once they had occupied there, they saw all these caches of weapons that these militias had stored up. You know, the other option that was debated was blockading the Japanese islands and starving them out and starving them into surrender, which I don't think is a very humane way to, to go either. Right. So there were no easy decisions to make at that point. Well, all right, you bring something up with the Japanese surrendering as hard as they fought. All right, so and this is I'm going to kind of put you on the spot. You're a, you're a writer, so your ability to describe uh, is uh, better than the average individual out there. As you look at the the, the different, different campaigns of World War II, you've got essentially a European soldier, a Japanese soldier, an American soldier. You know, I mean, again, pr- pretty much, right? Can you kind of, just from all your research, because you've written on the European campaigns as well now as the Pacific campaign, what are the differences, and I don't care how you categorize it, James, whether it's culturally, whether it's motivation, whether it's it's a spiritual, whether it's faith, what are the, 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 that you you have found in researching these three types of individual soldiers and how they view battle, what are some of the primary differences that good and bad, I don't really care, that you that you see between those? 
Yeah, I think I'll I'll start with the Japanese soldier in that example because I think that kind of provides a great contrast yeah. to how we look at everything else, right? And the Japanese soldier was kind of um, steeped in this concept of what the Japanese called Yamato Damashi. I hope I'm, I'm I think I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Um, but it was this idea of their righteous cause, and that if you if you were brave enough and you um, fought hard enough because right was on your side, you would be victorious. And so, you know, back to your question, I think you nailed it perfectly because it was this this combination of of culture, of honor, of of spirit that they kind of wrapped into this this one concept to really, you know, attempt to kind of push their way past some of these technological advances that that, that their enemy had. Right. And that's where you really then start to see that kind of set the terms for the war in the Pacific, meaning that, you know, the Japanese were never going to surrender in during a battle because surrendering in a battle meant you didn't believe in this righteous cause and that you were going to bring shame and embarrassment, not only upon yourself, but upon your family, potentially. And of course, you know, you're you're disobeying a direct order from the emperor who was viewed as God. And so it's this very complicated system all kind of wired together that was from a western perspective was very hard to kind of comprehend but the way that manifested itself on the battlefield was you know the americans and the british and the australians were put in this position of like well they're not going to surrender uh they treat prisoners horribly right by this time you know the the batan death march and all of those atrocities were extremely well known so no western soldier was going to put himself in a position of being treated like that willingly right now you have circumstances where with downed airmen and things like that where you just had no choice but these guys on the ground were were not going to let themselves get put in that position and so what you what you ended up having was you ended up having two very different mindsets but coming together under this unrelenting force of will if you if 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 that makes sense right and one of them was a lot better trained and had a lot heavier firepower than the other one did thankfully right Wow. Um, and th- and then I guess, you know, the other thing I'll just say about the, the European conflict, you know, you would typically see a German unit, and I, I may get these numbers slightly wrong, but they're close enough. Um, you know, a German unit would retreat or withdraw from a battlefield when it had suffered about 30% casualties, right? Same thing with an American, you know, they would view themselves no longer combat effective after a certain percentage of loss, and they would either call in reinforcements or they would withdraw to higher ground or, you know, what have you. Japanese units fought to something like 96, 97% attrition. Wow. Kind of more of a, a Spartan type uh, view of it. You just till the death, no, no surrender. And it, it, it's, it's interesting. I always find it interesting to kind of peel back the onion on the motivation of the soldiers. Like, you know, that's one of the things that's accredited going back again to the, the, the revolution uh, in America where you had paid soldiers versus those that were just fighting for a cause. If the cause is greater than any kind of material or anything like that, the difference that it makes, it's also kind of on a side note, it with the Germans being more pragmatic and engineering about, you know, looking at like, kind of taking a quantitative approach to how they decide when it's time to back out, when it's time to go forward. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you too, that I, I meant to ask you earlier. So being a paratrooper yourself, as you were, is that kind of what motivated you to dig into this? And as you did, like I, I interviewed Mike Thornton, who was, um, if I'm not mistaken, the very first class of Navy SEALs. He's a, a Medal of Honor winner, 
awesome, awesome guy and was a Navy SEAL and was one of the very first. You kind of had the opportunity as a more modern day paratrooper to look back on kind of your heritage as a paratrooper. How did that motivate you in this endeavor? And then kind of, were there any moments where you're like, holy crap, I can't imagine if we had to do that many jumps or like what you were saying, thank God I didn't have, I had somebody helping with, or there's like people helping with the packs. I mean, those guys didn't have near the technology. What were some of the, the differences that made you just kind of go, oh, wow. Or, or were there any? Yeah, no, I mean, I definitely think it's it's an interesting question and something I've thought about. You know, part of what what got me interested in it was this idea of, you know, I was I was at a reunion with um, some World War II veterans and uh, I was walking down the hallway of the hotel and this group of, you know, 80, uh, you know, 80 year old odd guys is coming towards me and they've got <laughs> they've got, you know, one of those big brass luggage racks that, you know, that you see in the lobby of hotels. Uh-huh. Well, instead of luggage on there, they've got a passed out 80 year old veteran on on the luggage rack. Right. And they're pushing them down the hallway. And I, I think I'm looking at a medical emergency, you know, so I run over there and this is back in the, you know, the time of flip phones, you know, and I flip open my little phone. I'm like, do I, do I need to call 911? They're like, no, 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 no. You know, no, he's just drunk. <laughs> we're, yes. we're taking him back to his hotel room. You know, I said, well, you, you know, do you need any, do you need any help? And they're like, yeah, actually we do. Um, his wife is in the hotel room and we can't run very fast and we don't want her to catch us. So if you could, wait for us to make it around the corner after we leave him in front of the the door, you could knock on the door and you can run a lot faster and you can catch up with us. And so, that you know, we, awesome. yeah. So, so we pulled off this plot, you know, without a hitch, I knocked on the door and made it around the corner and you could hear his wife yelling down the hallway, you know, about the guys that had gotten her husband drunk. But, you know, so we went back to the bar and that's kind of where, you know, now I was kind of in the in crowd because I had helped them pull off this caper. And they started, you know, they kind of started to open up to me and started telling these stories. And, you know, it was in that kind of conversation where I had this epiphany that, you know, I'm talking to the greatest generation. But when these guys were 19 or 20 years old, they weren't that different than the 19 or 20 year olds that I served with in terms of, you know, poor decision making <laughs> right. and and other kinds of things that, you know, young men do when they're in their late teens. And so that was something that I really wanted to to cover in in both of my books was this idea that y- you know, these guys were one of the things that defined the greatest generation wasn't that they were superhuman, it was that they weren't going to let themselves be defined by their circumstances, right? It's that old adage of you can't choose what happens to you, but you can choose how you respond to it. And and that kind of is often the the life of a soldier, right? A soldier is told where to go, may or may, or may not agree with that order, you know, sitting in the rain, you know, all these kind of circumstances, similar to your, your experience in China, you kind of just, you have to do what you have to do at that point. And uh, you can either get upset about it or you can roll with it, right? And so that's kind of where I I I wanted to bring in elements of of my service was just this idea of of embracing that mindset and making sure that readers understood that um, the greatest generation is great because of their willingness to do these things. And but it's just that it's that concept of um, 
I'm sorry, Jason. I'm kind of blubbering here. Um, I'm, I'm with you, brother. I'm, I, d- d- dude. I, I and we were. Go- I wanted to get to it. I, I, I'm dumbfounded by the chasm between this generation and the current. And I don't want to sound like that. You know, I don't want to sound like that um, pessimistic, cynical Gen Xer. But that's one of the things that came through to me loud and clear. I don't know how you can read a book like this, and you can read what these men endured. You read what they came from and what they were going through, and then you mentioned it. Their freaking age for crying out loud! Nine, their kids, nineteen. I mean, my daughter, my youngest daughter, just graduated from college this past weekend. She's twenty-two. Some of these guys were 19 and someone lied to get in and they were 17 or younger. It's like, holy yeah. crap. And then you read what they did and, and the, the, the selflessness that comes through and what they were willing to do. And like the story we told earlier, where, I mean, can you, I mean, I'd say I, just, I can't even, I can hardly fathom some of today's generation of adults as well as young people, even considering getting someone out of a car that had wrecked without first flipping open their phone and posting it on social media that a bad wreck had happened happened and then oh yeah maybe we should call somebody to help and if these guys just complete selflessness man unbelievable unbelievable um you know one of the things i was going to ask you too um what made you because and i have a buddy of mine colin barbado he's a he was a paratrooper he graduated west point uh then went to uh, jump training his and his knees tell the story to this day about (laughs) jumping out of airplanes what was it that made you decide? Because it is, it's still voluntary. Like when you did, you didn't get signed, okay, you're going to go jump out of airplanes. What made you decide that that was where you wanted to go whenever you joined? Yeah, I think the the primary influence, if I'm being honest, was probably my uncle, who okay. was a Vietnam veteran and had gone through jump school Oof. back in the late 60s. And, you know, I just was attracted to that cachet of that, you know, elite mindset you know he was he was a cocky guy always talked about you know how proud he was of having gone through jump school and that was something when i had the opportunity to go um i thought it would be you know a cool thing to do (laughs) so you know that was that was kind of my attraction to it was just you know i wanted to be cool like like my uncle all right so tell me this so these guys again going back to the contrast i gotta think now it's gotta be even better but one of the things always blows my mind when i'm thinking about okay whenever it comes down to where you get to exercise what you've been trained for, you're on the other side of the world somewhere and you're thrown out of an airplane and you land, you're disoriented. I mean, dude, I have the worst sense of direction. My wife can attest to it. I can barely find my way around Tyler, Texas half the time. I can't imagine being jumping jumping out of an airplane on the other side of the world in a field or in a desert or on a beach and go, all right, now find your way. What was like the hardest uh part of your training or anything that you went through where you were like, where you felt like you, you had really tested your human abilities to the max, but yet you're here to talk about it. Is there, is there any story that kind of sticks out for you personally? Yeah, I think, I, yeah. I mean, so I, I was later on in my career, I was a jump master, which is the guy who's, you know, and you've got a team of jump masters, depending on the type of aircraft you're jumping out of. But the idea is that jump masters are responsible for safety, right? Meaning the idea that your job is to get everybody out the door of the aircraft in a safe manner. And then, you know, it's up to them to land correctly and, and, and carry on from the mission from there. But we did a, um, 
in-flight rigging, meaning that, you know, in most cases when you're doing jumps, everybody puts on their parachutes before they get on the plane. That gives you the opportunity to inspect them all, to make sure they're put on correctly. Then you attach your combat equipment on over that. You know, we're talking static line jumps here. And so the idea is that you want to be very cognizant of how you've got all this equipment on, because if it's rigged improperly, that's how accidents happen. And, you know, parachutes are very unforgiving when you're jumping from as low as 650 feet, you know, 1200 feet, you don't have a lot of time to deploy your reserve parachute. And we were doing um, an in-flight rigging meant that the flight was so long that we weren't going to let guys sit in the plane the entire time with all their equipment on because it would have been cutting off circulation and everything else. So that meant that you were going to do in-flight rigging. Everybody in this aircraft that's already jam-packed with with dudes and weapons and parachutes was going to do it all while we're flying. And we're also going to do it under, you know, quote unquote, combat conditions, meaning it's going to be, you know, red lights on the inside, not great visibility. And as the primary jump master for my aircraft, I remember being extremely stressed out about that responsibility of, you know, it was my job to make sure all 120 or 140 of these guys got out the door safely. And yet I knew that I, it was physically impossible for me to inspect all of these guys, right? I had to rely on my my other jump master teams. And I remember, you know, the parachutes were kept at the back of the plane on the ramp of this is a C-141. And I remember as I used my switchblade to cut open the plastic that was covering these parachutes, for whatever reason it was, just during that moment of of cutting that plastic open, this calm, if you will, just kind of descended over me. And I just remember thinking, this is what you've been trained for. You know how to do this. Everything's going to be fine. And, you know, and so we went and did it and it was, it was fantastic. You know, I mean, it was, it was a great moment. We, it was, we were jumping into Australia. We had flown from Guam and I remember coming in over the great barrier reef at dawn at Australia, leaning out the aircraft door, seeing, seeing the ocean, you know, and this, it was, it was a fantastic experience. And then of course, you know, it was great because everybody got out of the aircraft safely. So, um, wow. That's amazing, man. That is so amazing. All right. So, to sum this thing up, man, I want you to take some uh, artistic liberties here. I want you to describe to anyone listening why they should read this book. You know, if you like this kind of book, fill in the blank, and what they can expect to to get from it, and why anyone that has an interest. And like I said, and I want to tell this is me editorializing. If you can get yourself into a place where one, you can see how a generation that is fast fading once lived and be inspired by it. And so hopefully we'll pick up on some of the cues from these, these unbelievable men to bring their honor, their integrity, their legacy forward into future, into, into the future. Read it for that. If you want to see the most amazing, um, I don't know, again, the miracle that is the human body, the human spirit, and the ability to overcome an insurmountable odds, I think the book's for you. And if you just like a great story, you just like great real life. This isn't something that Hollywood threw together with with special effects or, or whatever. This is a real. It reads like an action story with the backstories, you know, with these characters developing, and then they they start out over here and they go into battle, and you kind of and, and that's the cool thing about it uh, is that I loved how I loved knowing the characters in basic training, and then watching that training you know, come to life in battle. So cool. 
I'll shut up, man. I'm sorry. I got myself going talking about why people should read it, <laughs> but now you, now you, the author, <laughs> tell people why they. Well, that that was pretty good, Jason. I'm going to have a hard time beating that. <laughs> you know, I I would agree with everything you said, and I appreciate you saying that because I I worked hard to convey all of those things through the book. I would say, you know, if you're if you're a reader who wants to learn uh, about history and about an, some extraordinary events, you know, the old concept of ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances. This book is for you. It's it's a fantastic story. And by that, I mean, it's the 11th Airborne Division story is fantastic. I just happen to be the caretaker and privileged to be able to tell it. Um, you know, history, in my mind, is is still relevant and it's important for us to learn from it. It's important for us to understand the responsibility we have to carry forward these lessons and to live in a manner that does justice to those who came before us. Um, and so... I think there's a lot of those lessons in the books, you know, or in the book, I should say, um, you know, the 11th airborne division punched above their weight. As I mentioned earlier, you know, there were only 8,500 of them compared to other divisions. They used, uh, a lot of, of firepower. They used a lot of imagination. They used a lot of initiative to fight above their weight. You know, they, they left the, the Philippines bragging of a kill ratio of 45 to one. And, um, you know, that may be morbid, morbid terms for some, but the, but the name of the game was winning a war in world war two. Right. And so you kind of have to embrace the realities of what that entails. And I think that the 11th airborne is one of those great untold stories. And I hope you, um, I'm glad you're enjoying it and I hope your listeners do too. Man, well, absolutely. I cannot more highly recommend it. This has been so much fun getting to know you, James, man. Anytime you have a book, you've got a platform here to to shout shout to the masses, man, to, to let let people know what you got coming on going on. Uh, tell people where they can buy the book, where they can keep in touch with you and your anything else that you're gonna be writing. How do people follow you? Yeah, absolutely. The book's available through all the usual suspects online. You can get it at Amazon, you can get it at Barnes and Noble. Um, any of your local independent bookstores should be able to order it if they don't have it on their shelves as well. If you want to follow me and what I'm up to, you can find me at jamesfenelon.com. jamesfenelon.com. And I will have in the show notes all the uh, your your bio and all that so people will have that. And brother, this is great. And I didn't even realize I I, I feel so uh, I feel so bad that I didn't even realize you're you're in Austin or in the Hill Country rather. Um, so man, we're since you're here in the Lone Star State, I hope to one day get out there. I mean, Tyler's only four and a half hours from you. So maybe one time we'll we'll sync up and we'll have a conversation about war stories in person. I would love that. And I really thank you for coming on uh, the Jason Wright show today, man, and sharing this story. I can't wait till this book gets in more hands. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm right down the road. So I would love to catch up in person sometime. All right, brother, we'll make that happen. All right, let me do a little sign off here. All right, folks, that's it. Please go check out this book. It's an incredible read. And until we meet again here on the Jason Wright Show, always continue to improve. Always and always. I'm Jason. He's James. And we're out. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the show. It means more to me than you can possibly imagine. And if you enjoyed it, please consider going out to Apple and leaving us a five-star rating. That would mean the world to me. Also, follow me on Insta at Jason right now. And don't forget, download the Vitruvian Lab app. I mean it. I want to be your personal peak performance trainer. I want to help you improve always and always. Lastly, check out my newsletter, The Vitruvian Letter. You can subscribe at jasonrightnow.com. And until we meet again, please continue to endeavor to improve always in always. I'm out. <laughs>